Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Rappin' with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Perkelhammer, and tonight I have the pleasure of welcoming Matt Peterson. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for joining us. Thank for, yeah, thank you for having me. So for those of you folks that don't know uh, Matt, Matt is a senior editor and associate publisher with Reef to Rainforest Media and Coral Magazines, and is a senior editor and publishing partner with Aquatic Media Press and Amazonas magazine. Matt has kept aquariums for 39 years, has worked in most facets of the aquarium trade, is an active aquarist and fish breeder, both marine and freshwater, and was recognized with the 2009 Masna Award as the Masna Aquarist of the Year. Well, okay, Matt, we're, uh, we're going to dig into a lot of this stuff here, but again, I'm really, right. really, really happy to, uh, to have you on, and, and folks, welcome to the live stream again tonight. Thanks for tuning in. I see a Saint Insane Reefer is there, Paula Pal, Great Bearded Reef, MWP Fish Breeder is in the house. Which is me. That's you. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> you're 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 chatting in your own uh, as your own uh, chat uh, guest there, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. Shout out to ACI for for hopping on too. That's cool. AC, ACI is there. Uh, Macy's yeah. daddy. Uh, who else? We got Variant. Woohoo! So, um, before we start chatting with, uh, with Matt, I want to do some housekeeping and this is, this is kind of interesting. We, um, for a number of weeks, I have a live webcam on my 187 gallon, uh, reef tank and I had a problem with spam bots. I don't know, Matt, have you ever uh, heard of these spam bots? They're, uh, could be very problematic. <laughs> yep. So I had them all over my live webcam and what I did was I started to use an automated program called Nightbot to try to kind of limit the spam on that live webcam. And the problem was that Nightbot was also controlling some of the comments on this live stream and was apparently putting some of you uh, viewers in timeouts when it wasn't really <laughs> warranted. <laughs> so I apologize for that. And I really didn't know what was going on, you know, at the time, but I believe I have permanently deleted Nightbot. So that shouldn't be a problem anymore, but I do have some help tonight. I will have a real person as a moderator. Thank you to Ginger Bee Coaching for helping me out tonight as, as the moderator. You know, and the, and the conversations in chat have been really awesome, and I want to just keep encouraging people to chat and to participate and ask questions. Let's just make sure we keep, you know, that ball rolling and keep the chat civil and constructive. So with all that said, let's get on with the show. <laughs> all right. So, Matt, I, I frequently ask my guests, you know, this question in terms of how they started off in the hobby and the business and what have you. So just interested to hear your story, Matt, in, in terms of how you got your start. Well, uh, I, I've told the story many times, so I don't want to bore people who have already heard it. But um, basically, I got my first tank when I was five. It was a Christmas present for me and my brother for my parents, and it was a freshwater tank. And I was the kid who stuck with it and was interested. And, uh, by 10, I had, I turned that first 10 gallon into a saltwater tank. Um, and then by 12, I, I said, I need a bigger tank and I got a 30 long. And then at 13, I started, um, doing aquarium maintenance and I was working at a company called the great American pet mobile. And I took care of their small animal menagerie that they would take out to, um, to kids' birthday parties and schools and that kind of stuff. So I wasn't really legal to work but it was a family friend connection. And I just came in for a few hours, took care of their stuff. Uh, and then they also said, well, we get people who ask about aquarium maintenance. So I'm a 13 year old kid and my mom is driving me out to clients' houses to, to go in and 
service their small tanks and she's reading a book in the car waiting for me to be done basically. So I uh, got my first retail pet job when I was 14. I walked into the store and saw a system that wasn't running. And I asked the guy, I said, hey, uh, you know, are you hiring? He said, no. And I said, well, if I, if I get that system running, will you, will you give me a job? Yes. So I came in on a Saturday, got this uh, you know, small central system running for the marine section of his pet store and worked there for a couple of years and kind of bounced my way around um, retail aquarium trade for a while. And that, that's, so that's kind of the, the early years for, for me. So how, how did you um, kind of evolve after that? And, um, you know, I mean, obviously it, it, it turned into your profession full time. Yeah, um, but it wasn't always my, my full-time profession. I'm trained as a uh, interactive software developer. So uh, I left retail to go to college for marine biology, uh, and I wanted to study marine aquaculture down in uh, Florida. And I didn't end up sticking with it, and that was more about the school uh, than anything else. Um, so I kind of came back home and said, what am I going to do? My parents said, well, if you're going to live here, you're going to school, and that's our house rules. So I did. <laughs> And I went back to school and got a degree in uh, multimedia communications, ended up being hired on as a Flash developer. Um, while I was in school, I was running a wholesale uh, kind of hatchery operation, which John Baker called the Cichlid Factory. It was in his house, and I ended up doing all the sales, and then I'd be there on weekends to help with like maintenance and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I did all the deliveries and a lot of the bagging. Um, and then um, kind of you know, got into my actual profession for a while. And we set up an aquarium in the office. And for a while, that was where my, my aquarium was, was at the office. And uh, kind of had a, a falling out with my employer after five years. And so the tank was left at the office. And I ended up, uh, my next job was back in the aquarium trade uh, for another retail guy and uh, uh, arranging imports, which I had some familiarity with uh, due to my orchid business. Um, and uh, he wanted me to head up the maintenance de uh, department and really grow it. And... So I was there for maybe, I don't know, six months, uh, and I got another job in my actual profession, and I gave my two weeks notice, and he was very angry, and I said, well, can you pay me this? And he kind of jaw dropped and said, no. I said, okay, well, that's why I'm doing it. It's not personal. <laughs> uh, but I kept, you know, kept tanks at that point. That's back when I was uh, you know, in Chicago, and uh, that's when I met my wife and was uh, working professionally uh, and making good money, and we moved to Duluth. And uh, I had written for Coral uh, and James a couple times, and I was on staff as a senior editor, which can mean a lot of different things. Um, the company I worked for was bought, and uh, I want to say after about two years, they realized they couldn't market our services for a wide variety of reasons. So they basically closed the entire department, and I suddenly found myself without a job. And James Lawrence turned around and said, you want to come work for me? We're launching Amazonas right now. Let's do it. And I, and I did. And so now here I am. And I've been with uh, Coral and Amazonas since uh, as a as my profession for the last uh, since 2011. So um, be before we get into more conversation, John Reed from Vermont, thank you so much, man, for that super chat. I really appreciate it for coffee and cream. And as a thank you for all you do, well, we really appreciate that. Thanks, thanks a lot, there, John Reed from Vermont. So how how have things changed, uh, Matt, in terms of you know, I mean. You, Pretty much, you you um, have have a uh, multiple hats, I guess, in the in the print world in terms of you know the aquarium trade. How was how was that change in the digital age? How 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 has the uh, the organizations you you're you're um, with kind of evolved over the years? Well, 
you know, it's interesting because you hear you keep hearing print is dead, print is dead, print is dead. Every year, the magazines continue to grow. Mm. So uh, that's that's you know, there's there's this is what people want. They want this. They want to sit down and hold this and look at that. Um, we have a digital edition, um, and everyone gets that if they subscribe. Um, and over the years, we've improved that digital edition. Uh, it's very mobile friendly now. Uh, it gives you access to, uh, on the Coral side, I think it goes back to 2014. And right now, Amazon also goes back to 2014. So when you're a subscriber, you're not just getting you know, your current issues, but you have access to that full digital library going back, you know, years. Um, I mean, other than that, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting This like, we didn't jump on instantly and have an Instagram account, but we have Instagram accounts now, you know, and things like that. So we are not always the quickest to jump on the latest trend. Um, but we're there. And really, I think our main difference is we're not trying to, to play to the trends. We're trying to stick true to our mission of providing quality content that's been uh, vetted by professionals that's coming from experts in their in their field. Um, so it's not just anyone can post anything on the internet and uh, you don't get that out of a magazine. Yeah, no, I was that was going to kind of be my follow-up question is that in, in today's day and age, anybody like me can have a show, can have a blog, um, YouTube channel. So there's a lot of information out there. And I was talking about this with Julian, Julian Sprung on the show uh, when I had him on. In, in terms of all these different channels of information and there's um there's a lot to sift through and and so that can be right. there could be a challenge right for somebody that uh, might not be in the know or might be reading something by by uh, somebody posting on social media that um you know might not be something that they could back up well it's 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 information overload at this point and and really you can go out on the internet and find an answer that, that fits what you wanted to say. Um, I think, you know, it's really easy to fall into confirmation bias and think, I think this is what's wrong and find 10 people who will say, yeah, that, that's right. That's what's wrong. Uh, and then the one guy who actually knows what's happening, you know, posts like seven lines down and says, no, 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 this is what it really is. And that just gets overwhelmed by all the uh, other commentary that isn't, that isn't correct. I've seen that happen on many occasions. I actually did a, uh, a blog post a long time ago uh, about, uh, just the identification of, of clownfish. Um, and I posted up some clownfish I had imported and basically asked people, I just got these, I don't know what they are. And I, I want to say it was like two people actually gave me the correct answer out of like 70. Oh, wow. So, I, you know, it was, it was really interesting. I think that post is called, can Facebook identify a clownfish or something <laughs> like that? Um, it, was, it was really interesting to see that, you know, you, you can get a lot of answers. That doesn't mean they're the right answers. Right, right. So, uh, when it when it goes through one of the magazines, uh, like Amazonas, we're we're in our production for the May June issue right now, um, and I'm a, I'm running a little behind on my obligations. But every every article has already been looked at by the author, uh, by at least one editor. And if it was from Germany, it's already been through the entire German review process. Then it comes to us, and Ann Whitman and Courtney Tobler uh, look over those things. Then I look over them. Stefan Tanner might also look over that thing. So you're looking at information that's been viewed by many people with lots of experience, all coming from their different areas of expertise. Um, and, and by the time you get that finished pro product, I think it's about as polished and about as accurate and, and fair and, and balanced as, as it can be. Um, 
So it's a lot different than someone just quickly rattling off a Facebook post or a forum post or, you know, hopping on a video for 20 minutes and just rambling. Yeah, no, it, it is really just so important to have uh, the credibility behind the information. And, and, um, and, you know, it's, listen, there's, there are a lot of outlets out there and, and the, uh, the, the forums are, um, can be really good. There, there can be some very informative things on the uh, forums, yeah. but then there could be some misleading things on the forums. So, I mean, I grew up, I grew up on the forums, you know, I mean, that was, that was last decade. Well, I get the two thousands. That was where information and, and things were happening. Um, that was where that sense of community happened. And then I think if anything has changed, it's really been that migration away from forums and onto social media platforms. And that is the biggest problem that I see in the internet today. Uh, it's just that information, good information is lost. Uh, it's not, it doesn't easily come up in a search result. Um, whereas, you know, you can go back on reef central. I believe all my posts from the two thousands are still there. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's still, re still referenceable. You can go onto, uh, some of these websites and see things as they unfolded, uh, in real time. Um, you know, but if I post something on Facebook, no matter how cool it is, it, it gets buried and a lot of people aren't going to see it. Let's let's also talk about the stuff that you're doing for the industry as a whole. You're you're uh, you're involved with Masna right now, right? What uh, what's your role with Masna? So my main role with Masna is uh, I volunteered to take over the uh, Masna Award program. So uh, Aquarius of the Year and the Masna Award, I now am uh, helping run that for the organization. Can can you just give a little overview for the, some of the folks that don't know what uh, Masna is all about? So MASNA is the Marine Aquarium Societies of North America. Um, I think most people are, are most familiar with MASNA due to MACNA, Marine Aquarium Conference of North America. Uh, we actually have mini MACNA happening on Saturday. Um, I believe that's when it is. I hope that's when yeah. it is. Uh, yeah, the 27th. So um, that's an online mini conference uh, because we're in this age of COVID. And, uh, but MASNA is a nonprofit um, our, our local club is a member. There's a wide variety of programs that Mazna offers to help clubs. I think one of the, one of the best ones is the Mazna Speaks program, which, uh, helps offset the costs of bringing a speaker to, to clubs, especially small clubs like mine. Of course, right now we're not having meetings. We're not having speakers. Um, but having that, that grant to bring a speaker out, I mean, I think my club's membership costs $50. And that gives us access to up to $300 twice a year or something like that. I mean, that's a, that's a, it's there to serve, uh, Marine aquarium clubs. And then I think, uh, it really is, is focused heavily at this point on the Marine aquarium conference in North America, uh, and bringing that, that educational trade show mix all together. Um, so that, that's Mazna in the short of it. I mean, there's the scholarship program, there's the, my personal favorite, the Dr. Jindalun Memorial Open Access Publishing Fund. Uh, my company, Mini Waters, donates to that every year, uh, which helps fund uh, open access publishing of marine aquarium-related uh, science publications. Um, so a journal article, someone comes along and, hey, I did all this really great research, and it's going to have a benefit for the aquarium hobby, but it's going to cost me $2,000 to have it published open access. I actually have to, as the researcher, have to pay for that. Mm. Um, so that, so that fund is there as well to help, uh, bring that kind of information to the market. So at the core, MASNA is all about uh, marine aquarium education, uh, about advancing the marine aquarium hobby, about advancing, uh, sustainable culture and captive breeding and 
it all it all goes together and there are a lot of different people involved in it's a it's a big behind the scenes organization that is uh, i look at the volunteers i know it's a very thankless job a lot of the times mm. um so i i would remind anyone who goes to a MACNA, if you see those MACNA volunteers, if you see the, the MACNA leadership, thank them profusely because they're not in it for the money. They're, they're doing this because they believe in, in the mission. So, Do you think there's going to be a, um, a MACNA this year or is that highly unlikely? I, I don't know. We, you know uh, I'm also involved in the Marine Breeding Initiative, the MBI, and uh, we, we, you know, we held out as long as we could before canceling it. We were going to have it for the first year here in Minnesota instead of Michigan. Um, so that's normally held end of July. And I can tell you that I have not seen anything yet about actually holding it this year. So, I mean, I can, I can give my personal experiences only, which is my wife's a teacher. I have two elementary grade yeah. school kids. Our, our numbers in Minnesota were crazy for so long, yeah. and then they just they just plummeted like a rock. Um, we sent my my wife went back to school teaching a month ago. This is her first week with full time in person teaching. Um, she only got vaccinated yesterday. Uh, you know, my my daughter has been here with me while my son has been back in school in hybrid, um, and then full time or they went back full time. So she's actually going to go back full time now. So. I'm feeling cautiously optimistic. I am not an epidemiologist, yeah. I, I, but I am. I have that science background enough to kind of look at this. I was watching our numbers because everything here in Minnesota is based on case rates, uh, biweekly case rates. But you can see the seven-day numbers well in advance of those biweekly numbers coming out. So you can kind of say, okay, this is what I think the next number is going to be. And uh, we kind of looked at it and said things are staying low. We're in a good position now. Fine, we'll send our daughter back to school, but we're being very cautious. So, yeah. I have I have no idea what the plan is. Uh, I've not talked to Mac, uh, the Macna organizers about Macna specifically, um, but I think it could happen this year. I, mm. I know a lot of other a lot of other uh, events are starting to come together. I think there was already an event down in Florida. Um, so, uh, I think as we get more people vaccinated. Uh, and we all can kind of just come together and do our part uh, with social distancing, keeping the, the mask wearing going, um, the science is behind it. And so if we just do that a little longer, uh, I think we can get there. Yeah, no, that would be awesome. You know, I think yeah. there is certainly a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm just looking at some of the comments. Uh, Great Bearded Reef, some members and officers from the Boston Reefers will be in attendance at the Mini Magna. Really looking forward to hearing Sally Joe's talk. Um <laughs> remember going to uh, Garf's website 15 plus years ago. I remember Garf. That was like the first kind of real website where you could check out frags, right? I Well, that and I loved the concept of the bulletproof reef. Yeah. I love the, here's the way that anyone can get into the reef aquarium hobby inexpensively and successfully. Mm -hmm. That was huge. Yeah. That was absolutely huge. Yeah. Um, another comment. Um, let's see here. Alex Correa is asking you, Matt, how you guys choose the articles for each issue. I'm assuming, uh, for, for both of those magazines, they are, sure. um, are they all related? How does that work? Most of the time, love the magazine. Okay. So, so I can talk, let's talk about the issue that's out right now. Let's talk about this one. Uh, I don't know if you can yeah. see it or not yeah, here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so spawning nights. Okay. That one, January, February, 2021 issue. Um, so, to, to, before I go in there, just to back up a tiny bit, 
uh, Amazonas started out as a German publication. Um, so part, part of, uh, I'm sorry, Coral and Amazonas both started as German publications. And then what ends up happening is we get the issue, they get translated, and we look at what's there that we can use. And then you'll also see homegrown stuff brought into the publication. So sometimes you'll get an issue that has a lot of the German content. This particular one, Spawning Nights, is a lot of homegrown content. Uh, and so in this case, this was a, a topic idea I had for a cover feature of uh, let's let's look at breeding corals at home. Excuse me. We finally have enough. We're, we're on the cusp of anyone being able to do it. Uh, the technology is there. The information is there. So I reached out to the people that I knew, so specifically Richard Ross uh, and Jamie Craggs, uh, and they roped me in with Carrie O'Neill, who I had I had awareness of but had never met. Um, and we all sat down and had a discussion and said, how can we take your individual experiences and produce um, an issue that it really could be uh, like the, the, the primer for the home coral breeder? How can I how can I create something that's almost like a mini book, a starting point for for pushing this next part of the hobby forward? And we worked on it for uh, yeah, better part of half a year, at least. Uh, until it came time to to put it all together. So uh, that's how that particular issue came together. Um, but some of them are, are pretty much pretty straightforward. This was this was a pet project, and sometimes we have the opportunity to do so that. So sometimes you do themes almost in, in terms of a... Well, it, there's always a cover feature. There's always a theme to an issue. Um, so a really good example. That, that can be good and bad. Um, I remember... <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the lightning questions in a second. Um, so I, I remember um, long before I worked with Coral, uh, you know, I would get the magazine and I remember getting the Gorgonian issue. And I'm sure people have heard me give this story before, but I got the Gorgonian issue and said, I have no interest in Gorgonians. And I, I probably didn't read it at all. I probably just put it on the shelf and walked away and was like, well, that was a waste. But when I went back and I wanted to do a Caribbean uh, biotope, reef tank upstairs all of a sudden that's a lot of gorgonian keeping i pulled that issue off the shelf and read it cover to cover at least two or three mm. times um so sometimes you know there's that's that's the, the the plus and the minus to it we we want there to be something in the issue for everyone but sometimes you're going to get an issue where you're like yeah i'm just not that right. interested in coral spawn yeah. okay but maybe you'll be really interested in the next issue and maybe five years from now you'll be like wait i want to breed coral that sounds cool now oh yeah pull yeah, it off so the shelf so, uh, you know, some of the topics, um, you know, I know I kind of know some of the things that we've been bouncing around. Ultimately, it's James. James's call. It's not my call. Uh, and I think he is, uh, if I can hype him up just a little bit, having worked with him for a decade, he is a phenomenal editor. Anything I give him, he makes better. Mm. Um, so I think I think you guys don't really see uh, James Lawrence and, and how much of a stamp he has on the hobby because he's totally behind the scenes, just producing a good quality magazine and producing books and that kind of stuff. It's it's nice to have that collaborative uh, type of relationship. So uh, we've got a nice uh, super chat, average reef. Thank you so much. And and uh, so the uh, the comment is hi Keith, hi Matt. I have a few lightning maroon questions as a new breeder, and who better to ask? So if you don't mind, I guess he's uh, or she is looking for some tips on breeding maroon lightning maroons. I don't mind answering questions about breeding clownfish in general. I'd, I'd kind of, you know, what do you want to know? Um, you know, the, the, I mean, clownfish at this point are, uh, 
uh, how can we put it? Uh, they are the guppies of the marine aquarium hobby. You know, a lot of people said that about Bangai cardinal fish, and that was because the baby Bangais would just show up in the reef tank. But actually, intentionally breeding Bangais uh, isn't always that easy. I wrote a book about it. Um, but clownfish, I think at this point, we have so nailed down the protocols. Uh, you know, breed mariculture. I just happen to have it on. Breed mariculture uh, has so many like almost off the shelf products that get your food started, get your yeah. your cultures started. Um, anyone who wants to breed clownfish can breed clownfish at this point. Um, that's, it's so, crazy. Yeah. I, so I mean, what would I, what else would I say about it? I think the, the problem I have now is that it's so easy that anyone can do it. It's more of a question of, should you do it? Because once you're successful, um, okay, I, got, I see average reefers question. I'll get to that in a second, but, but once you're successful breeding clownfish, it's really easy to overproduce them because uh, most reef hobbyists can put two clownfish in a tank and they're done, mm. you know? Uh, so it's not like something where you, someone can buy 20 or 30 of them. They're going to buy two and they're done. Right. What are you going to do with the other 200 you right. raised? Well, you know, the stores already have access to them. The commercial producers have everything locked up uh, and not in a bad way. It's just, there's plenty of captive bred clownfish out there. Um, so I'm trying to encourage people to move in other directions. If they're aspiring to breed marine fish, pick something that's not being done a lot. Like, let's just say all the different neon gobies. Be a specialist in neon gobies. And sure, regular neon gobies and gold lines are around, but there are a whole bunch of other species that aren't. And they show up once in a while at places like the Diver's Den. Grab those. Grab those and breed those because no one has them. And so now all of a sudden people want what you have because no one else has it. Um, so going to the clutches, the last two clutches have not developed. They stayed orange before wasting away. A pair has been laying consistently since August, but, uh, okay. So, you know, staying orange and not developing, they're, they're just not fertile. Um, so either the male is, is a bum, uh, or, or something else is going on dietarily. Um, but that's, 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 uh, that's what it is. You know, they stay orange, they don't develop, they waste away, they're infertile. That's about as much as I can tell you. You could swap out one of the pair uh, partners and see if that changes things. You could look at your diet. Uh, highest quality diet, good varied diet is important to quality eggs, uh, to less extent quality sperm. So really focus on the diet. Um, those, I mean, those would be the places I would start. Um, if it's a problem with the female, one of the tips that I got from uh, Joe Lichtenbert of Reef Propagations, Inc., who bred clownfish in the Chicago area for 20 years and I think was the biggest commercial hatchery no one knew about. Um, his tip was if you're, if you're getting bad eggs or if the parents are eating the eggs, feed the fish eggs. Mm. And we now have a good range of fish eggs available as frozen foods. So pick up some of those frozen egg uh, offerings. Try feeding those to your fish. See if that improves the quality of the eggs. Um, slowing down in the winter, you know, if there's seasonal impacts, uh, if there's, if, if your day and night cycle is being influenced by the window next to the tank, the fish pick up on that. Um, so, you know, they'll, they'll come back around. Clownfish live easily 10 years. They can go up to 30. Wow. So I, you know, you've got, you've got plenty of time to refine this, uh, cause as long as you're, as long as they're healthy and you're treating them well, they're going to keep breeding for a long time. I think, uh, on the original lightning pair, I stopped counting after 50 spawns i was like well this is just silly (laughs) (laughs) it's like no i I, I don't need to count every single one anymore so 
Great Bearded Reef, thanks ah. for that super chat. And wow, John Easley, thank you so much for that super chat. That is awesome. Really, really appreciate that. So, Matt, how, how tough is it to get into fish breeding? Is that something that um, you really need to do a lot of uh, homework on, a lot of research on, make sure you're set up right? I mean, can can you get into it with a pretty low cost of entry and, and be successful? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can. Um, you just have to have realistic expectations. Um, do it because you love it. Don't do it because you're thinking you're going to get rich. Um, I mean... It, it, Back when I lived in Chicago, I had all my reef tanks literally right on either side of my desk or right behind me. That was, and I worked from home. I've been a remote employee for 17 years. Um, so I was literally watching everything going on in my tanks all the time. Out of the corner of my eye, if something odd was going on, I would catch it and just, what is going on? Um, so the way I did it back then, I did my most successful breeding work, I would say, was actually back when I was in Chicago. Not when I had an entire fish room. Uh, that's, you know, and then I was having young kids and then life gets in the way. But, um, when I kept things small, they were manageable. So I, I approached in those early days more because I was limited by what I could do. You know, I had a, a nano cube, a 24 gallon nano cube that I think had a pair, a spawning pair of mandarins, uh, a spawning pair of red scooter blennies, a spawning trio of pygmy angels, wow. a spawning pair of, uh, of green banded gobies, a spawning pair of band guys. Uh, I think there was a spawning pair of, um, at one point, there was a, a spawning trio of Apogon Margarita Forest, which now has another genus name, and Apogon left the campus. So I had like planned out, I mean, it was a lot of fish. I don't recommend people do this if they're new to the hobby, but that tank got a good water change every week um, and, and did that. Uh, so, you know, the system can handle it. And I it's, it's husbandry and making sure you're taking care of things. But in that one tank, I could literally pick and choose what I wanted to work with. Uh, you know, turn the lights off at night and wait for the mandarins to spawn and take their eggs and go incubate them in the 10 gallon tank. Um, you know, you, you could spawn, you could take, um, baby angelfish eggs any day of the week cause they spawn every night. Uh, the, the green banded gobies spawned, I want to say it was like every two weeks and I would just collect the babies when they hatched in the tank. Um, so I did a lot of that rearing. I only had 10 gallon tanks. I know we talk a lot now about black round tubs as being much better uh, environments for rearing marine fish. And that's absolutely true. But that doesn't mean you can't do some of these things in a 10-gallon tank. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be this huge thing. Um, thank you again, Average Reef, for that uh, super chat. And uh, wants to know, thoughts on gill flare. My earlier babies, um, many had it, but it's been going down each clutch. Diet, water, quality, genetics, or combination, all question marks. In this case, you're becoming a better breeder. This, I would say you're getting better at rearing babies and giving them better quality environment. And so that's why you would see the incidents going down. Maybe you've changed something about the diet. Um, but I really think that those, those problems are more environmentally driven. Um, and there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, so, and I couldn't point you to the, the individual one uh, as far as it's this particular smoking gun, you fix this. Because you'll talk to different breeders and someone will say, well, it, for me, it was I changed this. And you talk to someone else. That's not what I did. I did this. So I don't have an answer for you there, unfortunately. But we do kind of know that the, the better of a rearing environment, the better quality eggs, it all plays into the ultimate, the ultimate goal. So Chris from ACI Aquaculture is asking you, do you think you can get our pair of gem tangs to spawn? 
<laughs> well, you got to find out first, are they a boy and a girl, Chris? <laughs> so, um, I mean, I, I don't know where you have, where, what you have them housed in right now there at ACI, but, um, I do know that they're hobbyists who have spawned heptangs in like a 175. Um, you know, the fish, if they want to do it, they tend to find a way. Uh, the mandarins would rise to the surface in my tank and they'd hit the surface. They wanted to keep going up, but then they would hit the surface and then they'd go across the surface. So they made it work. I mean, they, they want to get it on. So <laughs> if they're happy and you got a boy and a girl, um, there's, there's, I would say they will try. I can't say it will work well, but they will try. It's like, you know, teenagers in the back of a car maybe, but you know, they'll try. Chris is saying so, it's a bonded pair. They were collected as a pair. So um, maybe there's hope. Yeah, but I don't think, I don't think that, that zebrazoma are really pair bonding fish. Uh, I don't know. I mean, watching, watching how they spawn at like the, uh, uh, like Joe Iulo's uh, 20,000 gallon reef tank, you know, I mean, they use that whole tank when they're spawning. So um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a tang breeding expert. I would say talk to, Talk to the guys at, o at the Oceanic Institute. Talk to the guys at Biota. See what they have to mm. say. So the New York fish guy, Felix Miranda, have you seen the movies uh, My Octopus Teacher and The Octopus in My House? Have you considered an article on the octopuses? I have not. I'm aware of My Octopus Teacher. I'm aware that it's out there, but I haven't watched it. I have not heard of the other one. Um, you know, cephalopods are such a niche thing that I don't, I don't know that we would ever do a cover feature on them. Um, there's such a, I mean, there's such a tiny part of the marine aquarium hobby. Um, I, I'm sure we've probably written about them at some, at some capacity in the past, um, but it's not something that's been on our radar lately. Doesn't mean it won't show up. We like, we like hearing suggestions. So. So uh, this can, um, thus Reef has a question, and I'm not going to read this out because I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. So you can. Uh... Oh, <laughs> Ketodon Austria. There you go. And no, but I still have the Malapterus and the Trifossiatus pair there. They're over in the dining room area. Um, no, I have not seen an Austriacus available. Uh, Malapterus keeps showing up. I don't know what the story is there. I, I remember giving my talk on the Corallivores uh, and uh, 2018 at Magna, and someone from the back, maybe it was you, was shouting, "I know where to get Austriacus," but uh, yeah, no, I uh, I have not seen one available. Otherwise, I probably would have bought it. So Coral Vids is asking, does anyone breed cephalopods for the aquarium industry that you know of? Currently, I'm not aware of anyone doing it. Currently, okay. that doesn't mean there isn't someone out there, but uh, I, I can't say that I've seen captive bred cuttlefish. Sepia bandensis were a big one for a long time. Uh, Laura Bierenbrom was really pushing that. Um, but I think she's not doing that currently. And I don't know that anyone else jumped in and saw a great opportunity. Um, I can't, I can't point you to any place in particular. What, what captive bred fish excites you the most? If you had to pick one. I, well, the biggest breakthrough in a long time has been the tangs and the butterflies seeing, seeing those unthinkable fish suddenly done. And, and I shouldn't say suddenly, cause there was a lot of, decades of research and failure leading up to those things finally happening. Um, those are game changers. Uh, captive bred wrasses were game changers. I mean, think about, you know, once you generally break into a category, what you learn about that one particular species you were successful with, you can start trying to apply it to other species. 
and maybe it's exactly the same or maybe it's just a little tweak but you can all of a sudden start knocking down all those other species that are in a genus or a family and it's not that they're suddenly going to be available commercially it's just that all of a sudden we've attained the knowledge so that if we want to do it in theory we can um i think that's that's always been the excitement for breeding marine fish for me is the opportunity to do something that's never been done i think the list of species that have been bred once is now over 400 we're due for another uh, update to that project that we normally do with coral um you can find that on our homepage at reef terrain forest there's a captive bred project homepage link and it'll give you all the past lists show you species that have been bred in captivity and i think when we started the initial list was a list we built it off of frank bonch's list and he had like a hundred and something and now we're at 400 but there's still 2,000 plus marine fish that get brought into the aquarium trade, uh, different species. There's still a lot of opportunity to do something no one has done. Wow. Um, I mean, I wanted to do that when I was a little kid, and I got to do that with the Harlequin filefish. Um, that was it was absolutely incredible. To I'm the only person on the planet who's ever done this, um, and that's that sense of accomplishment and doing something like that is still out there for any hobbyist who wants to tackle that. How do you how do you break through on something like that? I mean, how do you become the first to um, you know, successfully breed a certain fish? What what did you do differently that somebody didn't do? I try I tried. Just kept No one else, no no one was trying. Was trying. Uh, I picked a fish that that wasn't really being actively pursued and I I mean, my whole work with the Harlequin filefish was inspired by Iris Bunick who did uh bristletail filefish and I know we all we all have uh, heard of that fish at this point, but back in the mid 2000s, you know, the Aptasia eating filefish was this enigma out of Germany and Europe. Like, wait, there's this, there's this filefish that will eat my Aptasia. <laughs> and then Iris bred them. And I just was like, Oh my God. And it looks so easy too. She made it look so easy. Um, I think they took 15 days from hatching to settlement. It was crazy. And I couldn't find them. I couldn't find them here in the U S but I happened across a pair of Harlequin filefish, which are coral eaters um they're they're fish that are usually on the do not keep list um but i was already really successful with mandarins so i kind of said well I'll, I'll try this and i did and i figured out how to keep them alive and then i had there had been a spawning report in the 1990s on the breeders registry um and so i had that single report there were a couple scientific papers on how they reproduced and their embryology and so I had these little bits of information that I could kind of piece together. And so I kind of knew what I might be watching for and looking for. You know, we knew how to sex the fish. All these little pieces of the puzzle you start putting together. And then they laid eggs. They, they did it. And then, okay, it's uncharted territory. And I think, I think it was my first run I got a few uh, and got one to settlement. I think it was the very first time. I, I'd have to look back and see. But um, And then it just did the same thing and then had the same result, did the same thing a third time, got one through. And then by that point, I had kind of started to think, okay, why, why am I only getting one through? What am I doing that's not right? Um, and by, you know, by that point, I think I had 50 at a point where normally I would have had one. But then I was off speaking, I think, at MACNA of all places and came back and they were gone. Uh, and then we moved. So and then I lost the pair that was mm. spawning. So I said, okay. I'll move on to the next thing. So I, I had a, uh, you know, I still have the, uh, the this pair of clownfish in my one of my uh, reef tanks. And when I, um, I, I, I initially had a pair that I purchased that was a bonded pair. One of them didn't make it, so I picked up another 
clown fish in the hopes that they would bond. And, you know, off the mm -hmm. bat, they didn't. Like, for the first year, year and a half, they went to sleep in different corners of the tank. They didn't really, you know, they weren't interested in one another. They weren't chasing each other. Um, so, the, you know, this went on for, like, year, year and a half or what have you. And then uh, maybe after two years, all of a sudden, I noticed that there was a clutch of eggs in the corner of the tank. I was like, how did that happen? How could these two fish that had no interest in being together for like a year and a half, two years or whatever it was, all of a sudden made it up and started uh, laying eggs? I mean, I'm bringing that up because, you know, how long do you kind of uh, give a pair of fish to breed before you give up? Well, so I mean, there, there's, it's, it's totally dependent on the species. The perfect example is uh, Infriprian ocellaris, the regular false Percula, if you will, common clownfish. I think it's like eight months to maturity on a male, maybe even less, and a year and a half for a female. But Percula clowns take three years to mature as a female. Darwin black oscillaris take three to four to mature as a female. So it could just be your fish weren't old right. enough. Uh, you know, so there's some of these fish you can throw them together and they'll spawn as long as they're healthy right away. The, the pygmy angels were a perfect example of that. I got my, my trio and within two weeks they were spawning and it was just picking the right fish, you know, a, a larger fish that was mature, a couple smaller fish, put them all in a tank together. They started spawning like that and they just kept going. Uh, but I was stuffing them full of good food and, and they were happy. Um, so I, I think, uh, there's, again, there's no right or wrong answer there. My, uh, Someone asked about the Corolivore project, and yes, it's still going. Uh, I've not been able to get fish here in Duluth, Minnesota with air cargo for a year now due to the pandemic. So even if the fish were available, I would have no way to get them here um, other than FedEx. And that can be really expensive when you're trying to buy a dozen of yeah. something. Um, so and they haven't been available. Um, but I still have the pair, the, the, the hybrid pair of Malapterus with Trifasciatus. And I feel like I think it's probably been four, even five years now that they've been alive. Uh, these coral feeding butterflies that are supposed to be long since dead. Uh, so they're a mixed species pair. That's the first problem. They've never really gotten much more size than where they were when I bought them, at least not that I've noticed. And I feel like out of the corner of my eye, once or twice, late at night, I've happened to see what I thought might have been courtship behavior. Mm. And it was like, okay, you stop and I just sit <laughs> and watch and then nothing happens. And Okay. So, you know, they could be spawning right now and I'm just not doing the work to like shut the tank down or collect eggs at night to see. I don't think they're spawning. So because I don't think they're spawning, uh, I'm not pursuing trying to find right. out that they're spawning. They're not. They're good. I feel like they need to be better. I'm, still, there's something not not quite 100 percent, but I, they might be spawning. Um, I, I don't I don't know. So, but yeah, that project's still going. <laughs> Uh, that I knew that was going to be a long-term uphill battle. Uh, I have a couple clownfish uh, hybrid pairs that I'm trying to get to do, and they're just they're just two clownfish living together, and they won't do anything. So, well, persistence hopefully will pay off down the road. Uh, Cor yeah. Coral Vids has got a couple more questions. Um, one is uh, maybe a quick question: Is there a place to buy the captive bred wrasses that you know of? I haven't seen any yet. Okay. That doesn't mean they won't happen in the future. Okay. Uh, you know, a couple came like when uh, when Javier Montalvo did uh, the Hawaiian cleaner wrasse. A few of those came into the trade here in the states, and and that was that because that was a research project. That wasn't um, 
that wasn't, hey, we're suddenly breeding thousands of Hawaiian cleaner wrasse. Um, so you know, we benefit from those research projects on rare occasions, but that doesn't mean it's a, a, a commercially viable thing that instantaneously it's going to happen. Should we have captive bred cleaner wrasses? Yeah, I think that'd be great. And it's happened, uh, regular cleaner wrasse happened by accident at Bally Aquarich. You know, he was breeding, he was rearing angelfish eggs. And along with all the angelfish that grew up, well, he's got cleaner wrasses in the pond with the angels. And surprise, <laughs> baby, baby cleaner wrasses. Now, I'm reminded that there are captive bred harlequin tusks uh, at Bally Aquarich right now. That's a new thing that happened this, uh, this past three or four months now. Uh, I don't know if they're going to make it into the trade or not. But I know they're there, and he sells his fish, so uh, maybe we could see captive red harlequin uh, uh, tusk fish show up in, in the future. Um, so, uh, Coral Bids has got another good question. I think this is um, something I, I I don't know. What what is the difference between captive bred and aquacultured? Okay, so that's a really simple one to answer. Aquacultured is a big umbrella term. Anything that's produced through the act of intensive culture. Uh, in theory, could be aquacultured. Uh, you could even argue that a maricultured coral, which is you know a coral that's fragged and grown out in the ocean, that's still aquaculture. Um, captive bred is much more restrictive. Captive bred is uh, we've got a few different definitions going around, um, but it started out as tank raised, which is what the freshwater trade calls it, calls a captive bred fish. They just call them tank raised or pond raised or you know so all these various descriptors. And what ended up starting to happen was people were bringing in very small wild fish, rearing them up to a market size and calling them tank raised. The confusion that created was these fish were not spawned in captivity. They were not grown uh, through their earliest larval periods in captivity. So it was, it was misleading. People thought they were buying fish that were never touching the ocean. Um, captive bred. As I like to think of it, it means they're spawned in captivity. They go through all their larval phase in captivity. They grow up in captivity and they come to you. The parents might be wild. Uh, they might have come from the wild originally, uh, but they're held in captivity. So that's that's kind of the nickel, very short, concise version. Uh, but there are so many different forms of aquaculture. Captive breeding is just one subset. Um, some people won't really consider captive breeding a success until the parents are captive bred themselves. So you're starting that second generation, and that's working. Some people only really think that that's captive bred. Uh, and there are actually definitions relating to this from, uh, like, CITES, uh, you know, these, these legal st- structures that um, govern trade in, in animals. Uh, AZA has their definitions for what captive bred is, um, because they have to have those definitions so they can hold people to those standards. Um, but yeah, aquaculture is is everything. Captive bread is that little niche within it. Can can you talk about the situation in Hawaii and and really how important it is in terms of the fish breeding and and the aquaculture um, you know industry and and can can that potentially make up for the shortfall that we're seeing in terms of fish coming from Hawaii or is that just um, got such a major impact on the trade at this point that it's well, I was on the panel discussion for Mini Magna. Uh, on Tuesday, and that came up, so I'm not going to spoil okay. it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil what was discussed by uh, Jake. Uh, I, it's, the answer is there. Go, go to Mini Magna. Um, what I will say, uh, Hawaii for me has been really frustrating because it's been this ongoing battle 
that where science didn't matter. Uh, science, you know, they tried to legislate the aquarium fishery out of existence for years, and it always failed. And the only reason it failed was because the science said otherwise. Um, and so the groups who were going after this fishery that kind of did an end round and, and realized, well, maybe we could sue them on environmental impact statements. And they got judges to agree with them. And that's what did it. So they took a perfectly legal, perfectly sustainable fishery and got it shuttered. And they didn't even succeed right away. Um, you know, they got their first judgments like a year and a half ago, uh, where, you know, it got rid of the fine mesh nets and it closed off certain areas. And so the, the collectors, you know, some of them left, some of them persevered and found new ways to collect fish that were still legal. And then of course the people who, you know, who got this, these, these restrictions put in place said, well, that's not what we meant. And they went back to court again and said, no, 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 you weren't supposed to be collecting anything got a judge to agree with them again and so now here we here's where we are the the things that bug me about this and the things that reveal what this is really about is they've only gone after the aquarium fishery it's the smallest fishery it's this little artisanal fishery yes it harvests fish it's, no one denies that but it was managed by the department of agriculture uh, department of aquatic resources uh, it was scientifically managed there's data on it just going back decades, um, every time there was pressure on the fishermen, I feel like they, and I'm, I'm not an insider on this, but outside looking in, I feel like they capitulated. They would say, fine, we'll, we'll have a whitelist. We'll only collect these 40 fish. And then, you know, so they're, they're making concessions to try to keep their trade going. And it's just that, that, okay, you conceded. And then they push you more. Um, but the other part of, of this is that, Right now, it's legal in Hawaii to spearfish, shoot an Achilles tang, and sell it at a market for $4.99 a pound. But it's illegal to take that same fish off the reef, put it into the aquarium trade, and generate a, a retail sale of $300 and all the people that benefit along the way for that. Um, that's crazy. That's, that, that is what reveals what's truly yeah. at the heart of this. It has nothing to do... With the fishery itself, it's just a scapegoating type of thing. It's it's an emotional argument. It's blame all the problems on this small fishery that's well managed. I mean, that's the department's job is to manage that fishery. Um, and so, what really gets me uh, upset about this is that the aquarium fishery, which is uh, licensed under a commercial marine fishery license, is like forty people. And they are being subjected to this environmental review process. Um, none of the other fisheries under that same license are required to undergo this environmental review process. It is just singling out the aquarium fishery. Mm. You would think that if they really cared, they would have been doing this for everyone. You know, whether they're fishing for tuna or they're pulling off some other, you know, sponges or who knows i don't know what those fisheries are but there's a lot more commercial marine fishery licenses out there thousands of them versus just the 40 or so that were active marine collectors so it's to me it looks like a very targeted hit job and um there's been a lot of money dumped into this environmental review process already um and people who weren't scientists were able to just in positions of power to just reject it like ah you didn't do this you didn't do that go away um, so do I know if the fishery is ever going to come back? I don't. Um, 
the rumors are and have been for several years that once Hawaii was shut down, the next fishery they're going after is Florida. Mm-hmm. So what are they going to shut down aquaculture live rock now? I mean, Florida's another really well-managed aquarium fishery. Um, it's managed in partnership with the Department of Research, uh, Fish, Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, uh, Conservation Commission, and the fishermen actually come together and make those decisions about management. You know, the reason you can't get condylactis anemones uh, out of Florida right now really is because the fishermen voluntarily said, we don't see a lot of them. We should stop harvesting mm. them. Something's not right. We're not going to harvest them. That is the epitome of a well-managed proactive fishery, and yet they're going to come after that next. So it's not really about science. It's not really about sustainability. It's about an emotional agenda, um, and it's really hard to battle emotions, uh, even even when the data is on your side. On your side, uh, we see we've seen that a lot lately. So um, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. But as that pertains to marine fish breeding. Um, Obviously, the people who are breeding yellow tangs uh, are now the primary source for yellow tangs. That's not a bad thing. Uh, we're lucky we have that, but we've lost a whole bunch of Hawaiian fish. And if those if those fish aren't aren't going to come back, and they're not already in the pipeline for captive breeding projects, they'll be gone. Mm. So your flame rats. If if biota is not working on flame rasses right now, and a couple other entities are not stockpiling and working on flame rasses, there may be no more flame rasses. Wow. That's simple. So Potter's Angels is another perfect example. Only collected in Hawaii. If you want a Potter's Angel, well, I hope you already have it. Because unless someone out there is, is going to get to the task of breeding Potter's Angels, they'll be gone. And that'll be that. Um, when you see a captive bred Potter's Angel... It's not going to be a sixty or an eighty dollar fish. It might be a five hundred dollar fish. Yeah, that's the thing. Because the prices they, are like nuts right now. Well, they're not really nuts because you have to think about what it takes to actually make those fish, yeah. and, and the investment of time and labor that goes into it. And I think part of the problem we had as breeders um, is that certain fish are un unsustainable to produce as a breeder. Um, perfect example uh, is the Bangai cardinal fish. Uh, when I wrote the book and I talked about it last year at Macna. The price to produce a Bangai cardinal fish here in the U.S., based on my numbers, is about seven bucks. So that's that's just my cost without considering my time, without considering certain business expenses. It was a seven dollar fish, so it might actually be closer to ten. So if I can't sell that fish to a wholesaler for at least twenty bucks, yeah. I'm not going to make any money. And if I'm going to try to have a business selling Bangai cardinal fish. Uh, and producing them and having just 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 one person, I'm going to need to sell a couple hundred a month, and I'm going to need to be getting good money. So the the problem is um, that would all be well and good if you were the only person doing it, because then you would just set the price. Yeah. You would say if you want band guys, they're sixty dollars retail, and that's that. But um, when there's wild caught fish that are being blown out for three dollars or free with your order. Um, really hard to get the money you need. Uh, and then it was really, it was really interesting because we, we wrote the book, we published it and released it in 2013. And by 2014, the price of a, a captive bred Bangai at retail had gone from $45 down to $15 at your local pet co. And it was like, we did all this work. We did all this planning to maybe if we needed to, uh, produce these fish, uh, as a hobby and boom, it's all done because a large scale operation was set up and started producing fish and 
So, and that's fine. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. Um, I don't know what we're going to see in terms of Hawaiian fish in the future. The, uh, and they're not going to, and they're not going to be cheap. Yeah, no, and that's, that's okay. I can't believe the, that's I can't okay. believe the prices of the, uh, the yellow eyed coal tang right now. I, I, I think I bought one about a Crazy. year and a half ago for like 50 bucks. And I, I noticed the other day it was like 400 bucks. It was like, oh man, wow. And it's a it's a brown fish with the yellow yeah. eyes. It's not even that. Pretty, I know. But yeah, it is. <laughs> it's totally common, very affordable type of fish in the past. And like, whoa, things went crazy. Um, yep. Matt, in in terms of the uh, you know the Hawaiian situation and the uh, the things that are going on in terms of the lobbying and and what have you, does the marine aquarium trade have enough lobbying power? I saw in, in the chat here somebody mentioned uh, PJAC and PJAC. I mean PJAC PJAC has been behind this the entire okay. time. Um. And I know the amount of money they've spent. I'm not liberally this, to disclose that. But man, I mean, this is this is a, a classic example of the underdog. The the aquarium fishery is absolutely the underdog in this. Um, how can how can folks help? I mean, you could you could argue, well, send more money to PJAC, but I, I mean, it's a lot of money. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I. We don't have what the reptile hobby has, which is U.S. ARC. Um, reptile hobbyists have been up against the wall for a long time because people freak out about your six-foot boa constrictor and want to make it illegal for you to have one next door to them. So they're in a different mindset uh, when it comes to protecting their right to have their hobby. Um, so U.S. ARC, I mean, it's well-funded by all the people in the trade, uh, hobbyists, donate like crazy to it because it's literally what it's they they recognize the need we don't have that so i don't have a place to to tell you to put your money other than pjack which is not bad um but pjack is is about more than just the the aquarium trade uh donate to the uh, aquatic defense fund i i have on occasion uh when i've had extra cash i'll throw it there um those donations will add up but it is a it is a gigantic legal battle um and you can run out of money if if the other people can just outspend you that could be it so um yeah i'm I'm not terribly optimistic uh it could all change i could be totally wrong and three months from now the revised environmental review statements go through and they finally concede that no we really can't stop this because it is a legal fishery um and it could all come back but you have to wonder how many fishermen lost their jobs and won't be able to come back mm-hmm. Uh, you have to, you know, they were lobbying for only 13 or 14 licensed collectors. All of this effort was to allow 14 businesses to continue to operate. That's, that's nothing. So cheap Hawaiian fish are never coming back. They're going to cost more. Um, whether they're captive bred or wild, they're not going to cost what they used to cost. So, and, and that's, that's okay. Maybe they shouldn't have cost what they cost. Um, so much of what you're seeing right now uh, with the high prices, when they saw this happen, all the suppliers raised their prices and a lot of that money went back to the divers who were being put out of work. So uh, at least that's what they were saying they were doing with it. So uh, it's not bad to do that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Matt, what what about the coral side of this whole uh, equation in terms of coral collection? You know, when I had Jake Adams on and uh, we, we talked about, uh, you know, that and, and aquaculture and corals in, in the oceans and, and what have you. And, you know, I think my question to him was, well, you know, there's so many folks out there that are raising, um, that are propagating corals in uh, their own home aquariums and, and um, 
you know, folks like ACI Agriculture are doing it. I mean, it, there's it, it's a lot easier to do that versus fish. Could could that be sustainable? Do we have to rely on uh, the folks that are aquaculturing, you know, corals in our oceans? What um, what are your um, thoughts on that? I think we should. I think we absolutely should support mariculture. That's that's a no brainer. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, coral, as it stands now, when we're fragging, I mean, the prices for coral stay up where they are because it's a low it's a low production kind of system. You, know, you take this post lapora that's this big, you break it up, you get ten more, and you wait six months, and then you can maybe make that into thirty. So, you know, it's this very slow process of building up a, a population. Fish, you know, one spawn of clownfish, you might have three hundred babies. Told, you can overproduce fish really easily yeah. um, if you're not gauging things. Coral. I don't think you can overproduce coral that easily. Maybe some of the really run-of-the-mill basic stuff, but you can you can find someone who will buy it and give you at least a fair price. I mean, ORA still cultures Xenia and soft corals. Uh, we need beginner corals. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, ocean mariculture, you know, farming corals in the ocean, like in Fiji, like what's being done at a, a, a Bali Aquarium um, right now in Indonesia, these other places... Uh, you're creating a reason to take care of the ocean, you know, to make sure that you can still grow corals in the ocean. Uh, it matters if, you know, nearby pollution is killing the farm. People are going to get upset. If there's no farm, no one's going to care. Um, so there's this whole thing about the things that we do that are tied to the ocean. Um, and it's, it's also something we see in the freshwater side of the trade with like Project Piaba, where if you have this, this beneficial fishery, this beneficial natural resource extraction that's renewable, um, it, people become vested in it and protect it because it's their livelihood. If they're not there doing that, there's no reason to protect it. They don't notice the problems. They don't, you know, it's, it has no impact. So um, one of the things that's gone back and forth since the, since the whole flip of, of yellow tangs no longer being available is, is that the ocean probably is the better place to rear a yellow mm -hmm. tang. It's probably like from a carbon foot, footprint standpoint alone, it's it's more environmentally friendly to just take it out of the ocean and ship yeah. it. Um, so, you know, versus all this intensive culture and all the electricity and power that goes into doing that. So, you know, we could argue about what kind of future we want to have and maybe we'll only be given one particular option. Um, but I mean, I love mariculture coral like you know getting the hitchhikers is cool you know it's it's not all it, 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 new varieties um ha having the ability to right. uh maybe be licensed as a farm i mean one of the things we talk about not shutting down wild harvest is breeders need fish they you know public aquariums get their fish through the same channels as the aquarium trade breeders get their fish through the same channels as everyone else y you gotta have um hmm, i'll have to get to that question a little bit maybe but you don't have to have um massive harvest but you need harvest you need access to those raw materials to start captive propagation projects so if i was running a coral farm somewhere i would still want to make sure that i would be allowed to go snorkel the reefs and as the farmer if i see some really cool coral that i want to bring into my farm and try to culture it that hopefully i would be licensed and allowed to do that because right. that's that's minimal right so um you know it's going to evolve and change i think the uh the, the freshwater hobby we say is 90% cultured and 10% wild. And I don't know where the numbers are for the marine aquarium hobby now, but we used to say it was 90% wild and 10% uh, 
uh, cultured. So that those numbers are gonna are gonna change. Uh, we're gonna see more culture. It's just inevitable. I I feel. Um, so I want to address remarkable uh, reefs and thanks for the super chat. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so. Biote was selling yellow tangs, profiting three weeks ago for 119. I don't understand the need for raising the price to more than double, other than greed. Um, I want to see what Biota is selling them for right now, um, because I was not aware that the price had gone up. Um, might take me a second here, uh, but I know the wild price went up, and that's because they're gone. <laughs> that's it. It's a I mean, supply it and demand with, uh, thing, right? It's well, yeah. I mean, it happened with. Um, Zebra, zebra Pleco. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Zebra Plecos. Um, okay, so yeah, the Biota Captive Bread, I'm looking at Live Aquaria, it's 279 right now. Good for them, because the regular Hawaiian tang is $450. <laughs> so that is good for them for being, wow. they're, 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 they're well below the price of a wild one. So it's, it is supply and demand, and good for them, because you know what? That money is going to fund Flame Rasses or Potter's Angels or some of those other things, those projects that, that are happening. Um, it's your choice whether you want to spend $279 on a captive bread yellow tang or not. Um, you don't have to, no one's, no one's holding the gun to your head to say, you got to buy that fish. <laughs> if you want a yellow tang, they have the market now. So, uh, and, and it'll come back down if people don't pay it. Um, but I also got to say they should, they should be rewarded for producing a fish that prior to now wouldn't have, wouldn't have mattered like it does now. So that, that's my two cents on it. It's just an opinion. Um, has yeah. has uh, COVID impacted anything in terms of the, um, you know, what we're seeing in terms of pricing? And I know in, in terms of shipping and what have you, that's impacted, been impacted by COVID. But has that impacted the uh, the fish trade, the coral trade in terms of? I mean, it, it impacted everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't, I didn't even sell fish uh, other than leftovers from 2019 because I can't get air cargo up here. Right. So. That's that. I mean, I, I could FedEx the same, you know, the, the, here's the real, the real kicker. I can get three boxes, big boxes up from Florida through air, air cargo to my local airport, 12, 12 minute drive away. And those three boxes, hundred pounds would cost $67. Yeah. If I was going to have that FedEx to me, I don't know. It's probably $300, $400. I, Maybe I mean, more. unless, unless you're willing, unless you're willing to, um, pay triple for your fish or quadruple. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So I just looked at it. So I'm not even going to deal with it. Um, and I, I'll bring in fish on rare occasions from local places that don't, I don't have that shipping problem. Um, but the other thing that's happened is that the aquarium hobby just exploded when everyone was stuck at home. Yeah. Nothing else to do. Oh, I've always wanted a fish tank and the pet stores are still open. I'll do that. So the fish hobby saw an explosion and so that drove up, drove up demand, which with limited supply, harder to get things and more demand for them, it's it's common economics to understand. Oh, and plus we were all getting stimulus checks, so we had money to burn. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, not everyone. A lot yeah. of people needed yeah, that yeah, money, yeah, yeah. but uh, not everyone did. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Um, so, uh, what's the deal with the COVID shroom? I'm uh, I'm actually showing a picture of it. You'll you'll see it pop up in a, in 20 seconds. What what's the deal with that there, Matt? I well, that's that's from ACI. So it just it's just oh, that's a, that's a uh, that from Chris. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So Chris, tell us in the in the caption there. No, I think we had a we had a blog post about it. Uh, that's one of that's one of the corals that um, that we featured from ACI. So I have um, a number uh, a number of years ago. 
when fish breeding was really at its pinnacle of progress. You know, it's kind of slowed down a little bit, but it seemed like, I mean, we were adding 30 or 40 or 50 species a year. And so there was a lot of coverage of fish breeding in coral for a long time because that's what was happening. Um, and more than one person walked up to me and they, I know they were, they were being clever and I'll acknowledge that. They were like, where's all the coral in Coral Magazine? And I sat about that, thought about that for a second and said, you're right, there, <laughs> there really isn't much in the way of coral in Coral Magazine. So I, I took that feedback to heart and we talked internally. And so we ended up with uh, the, the Reef Visions column here. So um, it was kind of this, uh, so here's, here's the Reef Visions column for this issue right here for Jan Feb. So opening spread, uh, there's the COVID shroom right there. Nice. So I don't know if you guys can yeah. see that. Um, so, I mean, I can, I can just tell you. So it's the St. Thomas mushroom. Uh, uh, it came out of the Dominican Republic. And there's a link to a blog post because that one we did a little more write-up on it, uh, thanks to Chris and Amanda. But, um, no, so, so I've, I've been working with a lot of different vendors uh, to say, basically, send me your best coral that are coming through the trade. and let's, we, we don't always need to write an entire two-page spread about a coral. Sometimes we can just give you a little snapshot and a nice picture and you get the gist of what's going on. And so that was a St. Thomas mushroom that looks cool and kind of happened to look like all the, the COVID renderings we've been seeing. And so that's, that's what it what, is. What's the going rate on a COVID uh, shroom these days? I'm sorry, what's what was the, that? Uh, what's the price these days for a COVID shroom? I have no idea. Chris would have to tell <laughs> us in the comments. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can afford one, but uh, let's see. Coral vids. Uh, do members of Matt's family think he is crazy? He is very fishy and lives <laughs> in a place surrounded by snow. <laughs> my wife is very tolerant. My my daughter sometimes thinks I'm crazy, but she's also the fish person. So and she likes to needle me. My seven year old. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Um, well, listen, uh, Matt. I don't want to like keep you too much uh, longer. It. Um, I got plenty you of got time. Plenty of time. Well, all right, folks. If if you got more questions, uh, put them out in the chat there uh, for us, and uh, we'll we'll get Matt to uh, to answer them. But um, yeah, you know, uh, let's see here. What do we got? Uh, the reefing community is alive. And... The reefing community is alive and well in snowy Minnesota, north to south. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. One of the other things I, um, and I'm always interested in, in uh, you know, learning about is um, kind of like you were, you were the, uh, you know, Aquarius of the year, right? And what, what's your current fish tank room look like these days? What do you got in terms of tanks? Uh, I, you know, I have a lot of empty tanks right got now, believe it or not. Tanks. Um, yeah, it's, uh, so, you know, you set up a fish room. Uh, and then you, you change it and then you modify it. And then at some point things happen and you take tanks down and then you have two kids and you don't have the time you used to. Um, and I'm in the process of what I said was going to be a one year renovation and I'm on the second year. And, uh, uh, so you don't go filling tanks when you're intending to move them and yeah. shuffle them around. Even, even if it's just, I think what, what, what ended up happening, um, we had, and we didn't talk about it at the time, but we had some really bad damage to our house, uh, in the winter between 2013 and 2014. And it took an entire year to get it fixed. Um, you know, it was a third of the, more than a third of the value of our house. 
Uh, and the entire time I was fighting with uh, State Farm, our insurance company, and they were saying, you know, you got to get all these fish tanks out of your house. We're not, you know, they insured my business. They knew what I had. They tried to say I never told them. And the fish tanks also had nothing to do with it. Uh, but they were just using it as an excuse basically to drop us mm. uh, because we had this big home claim. But I had to play this game where oh, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Don't don't take away our insurance because you're still paying for this repair. The moment it was done, I turned around and said, OK, I need to find a new insurance company. Uh, and I found Farmers was great. And they, they said, oh, this is not a problem. I was very upfront with them. Uh, it turned out the state farm was just I mean, they just didn't want to pay the, the claim. But I had to play this dance. I had to sell off my angelfish breeding oh, uh, no. business. And I tried I tried and it was the freshwater side, but it was it generated a good base revenue for the fish room. And uh, first, I, I gave a, a good portion of that to the angel, the guppy breeders I was working with. And I, I showed them they spent two days here. I showed them exactly how I was doing it, told them exactly what they needed to do. We had a, uh, a buyback agreement. I was going to purchase the fish from them. And they never got the production up. And every month we'd have a phone call or an email, and they'd say, "I'd say, are you have you figured it out yet? Oh, you know, it's, we're still not getting them to do this. Well, are you doing it the way I told you to? No, we're doing this other way. I'm like, do it the way I told you to. <laughs> <laughs> so it went on for a year, and they just never got it. And then uh, I, I sold off the stuff I had held back at one point, thinking I might be able to restart. Uh, there was another interested party, and same kind of arrangement. So that was the really choice stuff. And I think we got one box of fish out of that. Mm. And then they had an accident at their hatchery and boom, gone. Wow. Um, and then so, you know, the, the fish room got so full of tanks for rearing fish, for rearing baby fish. Uh, we don't we don't always talk about this, but if you're if you're going to produce things commercially, the bulk of the tank space is just for growing things up. You don't need a lot of space for the brood stock. You don't need a lot of space for the um for, for the early larval stages, you just need a ton of space for growing stuff up. Um, and so I had big tanks in the middle of the room that I, I just don't need anymore. I had 2,000 gallons of water running in the, in the basement. Wow. And, uh, you know, I think it was 60 or 70 or 80 tanks at one point. Um, I don't have nearly that much running right now. Um, I've also replaced a lot of it with vivarium plant production because um, I saw that as a great opportunity for um, actually for fish stores. Uh, to move disgruntled like reef hobbyists, uh, you know, you come in, you've tried to keep a reef tank and it just hasn't worked. That happened. Um, yeah. the, the same way that I used to take the guy who had a 200 gallon tank for like, you know, French angel fish and a lion fish and was just unhappy with it. Just a fish only tank. He'd come into the store and be like, I just want to get rid of my tank. Do you guys buy tanks? What, you know, what should I do? I would take that customer, walk them over to the African cichlids and say, hold on a second. You're not going to get your money back on that tank at all. So before you go down this route, this didn't work out for you. Look at these fish. Just drain your tank, fill it with fresh water, and put we'll put a dozen of these African cichlids in your tank. And then a month later, you'll come back and you'll buy another dozen. And you can do, keep doing that for the, the rest of the year. And you'll have like 60 or 70 fish in that tank. And they'll all look like this and they'll all be colorful. I can't tell you how many hobbyists I kept in the hobby by just finding them the right hobby for them. Right. So when I got sucked into the vivarium hobby, it's just a terrestrial reef tank. And I saw the opportunity there and it was a little bit of a, a hedge, my bet, if you will. And it's really good because uh, I couldn't get fish last year. I had no problem selling lots of plants last year. So I literally made up all the fish business I lost with all the plant business. I there gained. you go. So, you know, it's uh, I, but I put it out there for, to the fish stores to say, 
this might be something you you should consider. This is another emerging hobby. Um, it's the it's the it's the least maintenance of the three of a planted freshwater tank, a reef tank, or a vivarium. You spray it. If you have dart frogs, you give them fruit flies. That's the one problem. Uh, they're silent. There's nothing to leak or you know. Right. So. Uh, Yes, and they're all related, and it's it's amazing. Someone asked if I was still breeding orchids, and no, I'm not. Um, but this was like, oh, I can put orchids in my vivariums. I'm going to do that. <laughs> so it, it, it ticks all these little boxes that we all have as people who are interested in, in, in just the biodiversity that we want to put in our glass boxes. And so, you know, whether you're keeping freshwater, saltwater, a vivarium, they're all, to me, they're all in that same group. Uh, of of interest and you can easily fluidly move between all of them um i do like to get into arguments with mark levinson about uh freshwater fish though so it's been it's been a while i have to do that again <laughs> just to start start warring and saying you know there's no there's no good freshwater fish i'll send him a picture of a discus oh that's horrible it'll send like a soul i love conga congo uh, tetras that's my favorite freshwater fish. tetras are yeah, awesome they really yeah. are so coral vids is like can i be matt's fish room intern <laughs> is actually we we i have a job posting right now for someone here in duluth yeah oh wow i do there you go coral vids i do i Check was, it out. i've been i've been trying to uh but i mean it's only contract part-time basically helped me get the fish room back in order to where i want it to be i've been talking to friends around the country uh, one friend in particular i've been like you, you need to come here, even if it's just for two weeks, and I'm going to pay you cash. And if you don't hit 600, there's no 10 1099. If you do, there is. And I want you to run this project. Um, Mini Waters has gotten to the point where I, I recognize a need for help, but I want to find the right person. Uh, I'm not just going to put an ad on Craigslist and welcome people into my basement. So, so a couple of questions that were in the chat earlier that popped up again, and I, uh, I'm sorry I didn't get to them before. But uh, Alex Correa, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Alex. How do you see, so this is kind of a uh, change of pace right here, and, and the questions re regarding uh, lighting in terms of metal halides and T5s. And he's asking, basically, are you, are you seeing any kind of trends in the U.S. lately and any ideas on the halide T5 articles in the near future? I think I think that's dying technology. I think it's done. I mean, that's, I think it's done. I think, I mean, I, I know there are people who like it and prefer it, and yeah, but I think in the long run, I, here's the perfect example. Um, I have in my, in my basement, they belong to the club, um, a pair of 400 watt uh, brand new in the box, Hamilton, uh, T5, you know, four, you know, metal halide fixtures, all the bulbs and everything. And I couldn't sell them for $200. It's like a thousand dollars worth of lighting brand new in the box. I can't even get $200 for it. That tells me everything I need to know, at least locally about what people want. Uh, I might end up using them on my pond, but I, it's for, I think we, we're just to that point where LED has matured to the point where there's no reason to go any other way. And yeah, the, the buy-in is higher, but the, the long-term benefits far outweigh that higher price tag. Yeah, I've had great success with 400-watt 20K radium bulbs with T5s. You know, I mean, they just grow SPS like weeds. So, um, I've do. been, I've been doing that for 25 plus years, but my new tank, my new peninsula tank, I'm finally made the, uh, switch to, uh, to all LEDs. I, I went with the GHL Mitras. I don't have any corals in the tank yet. It's only like four months old, the tank. So, but you know, I took a par meter underneath the, uh, the lights and I got some great par readings, the, um, the spectrum, um, I am going to be mimicking with the, uh, the help of, um, 
a guy by the name of Telegram on Instagram and, and YouTube. He um, was able to send me a spectral plot that mimicked the 400-watt Hamilton bulbs as well as the 250-watt nice. uh, radium bulbs. And they also apparently are very close to the spectrum for the AB plus um, spectrum on the radions. So that's that's what I'm going to be uh, using. And yeah, I, you know, I think, hey, listen, you got they've got great coverage. They've got great par. They've got the spectrum that I uh, like. So I think, um, you know, it's all it's all pluses in my book. We'll see what happens. But I mean, you, you might like it. You might not. Um, but I mean, it's, it's just yeah, it's just to the point where I don't think we're going back. I think it's just, you know. As less people buy it, eventually we're going to not get the bulbs we want anymore because no one's buying them, and so they stop making them. And so, should I start hoarding yeah. uh, the uh, 400 watt 20k radium bulbs at this point? I mean, you might want to. I don't think they. I don't think they go bad. <laughs> <laughs> so if if you're if you're if you're liking those, I mean, keep using them. I mean, maybe maybe there's other uses for them that I'm not aware of outside of the repobby that. That will keep them going. I think Adam from Battle um, Corals has been hoarding uh, Isaki bulbs, uh, Ibasaki bulbs for <laughs> uh, for a while, and fear that those were going to be going away. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, oh yeah, Jason, your son, absolutely. We need to talk. <laughs> I'm just looking through the chat really oh. quick. And yes, uh, remarkable reefs. I do keep dart frogs. Uh, someone mentioned Uricarii. There's some Uri Uricarii right around the corner. You can't see them, but they're there. Uh, yeah, I keep dart frogs. Yeah. And my, my local fish breeder, the other saltwater breeder in Duluth, Minnesota, the only other guy breeding saltwater fish in Duluth, Minnesota, happens to live four blocks away. Our kids go to school together in the same grade. They're best friends. And he's the guy, uh, Mike Doty, Fogtown Frogs. He's the guy who got me into salt, uh, into dart frogs because we would watch when either one's traveling, we would watch each other's stuff. And one day he just surprised me. Hey, uh, do you mind also taking care of the dart frogs? I said, sure. What, what does it take? And he said, uh, so you spray them and you, you put the flies in. And I looked at him and said, that's it? He said, yeah, that's it. There's nothing else I have to do. Nope. Sounds pretty turnkey. Yeah, that's when, that's when the light bulb went off and I said, hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. So it took, a little, it took a little pushing, but he and another, another friend of his kind of handed me some tadpoles and said, oh, no. I said, no, no, I don't want the tadpoles. And they said, just, let your, just let your kids watch them you know, morph out. And if you really don't want the frogs, you can bring them back. <laughs> they knew exactly what they were doing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so we have dart frogs too. And, but I really, I don't, I'm not a good dart frog breeder. I suck at it. Um, I'm really good at growing plants though. What so. is a dart frog? What is, what does a dart frog look like? Um, you don't, I don't have anything. I don't have, I don't have anything handy. That I can just pulled up in front of you, but, um, uh, a poison dart frog. They're the little colorful small frogs that are found, you know, in South America that um, people are familiar with them. The, the uh, natives there will use them to poison the tips of their arrows. And um, but in captivity, they're perfectly harmless. They don't have their toxins. Um, there's some that are really secretive, some that are really bold, um, some that are quiet, some that are loud as heck. Um, it's just a little terrestrial frog. It's really brightly colored. It is literally. Uh, the dart frog hobby is just the terrestrial version of the reef hobby. Um, it's it's so amazing how similar they are when you realize, you know, it's it's like you can only have one pair of dart frogs most of the time in a tank, just like you can only have one pair of clownfish in a tank. And so you get collectoritis where people who like clownfish will have dozens of little tanks with a pair of clownfish in each one of them. 
but you can put a lot of different corals in each one of those tanks and you can put a lot of <laughs> a lot of different plants a lot of really rare and unusual plants in each one of those tanks um, think about the real estate right a, i mean yeah well and just you know i i'll let other people produce the frogs i'm going to produce the the terrestrial corals i'm going to produce the plants and so that's that's it was it was a business hedge and it worked out well but i also enjoy it and uh yeah i mean i I've, i keep fresh water keep salt water keep everything so yeah so uh coral vids is uh what doesn't matt grow <laughs> no weed i don't, you don't, grow, you weed. don't grow weed yet <laughs> the, the neighbor the neighbors uh in chicago were really disappointed when they saw the glow from the condo and they came knocking and said, what do you got going on in there? I said, oh, come on in. I'll show you. And it's these bubbling bottles of phytoplankton. And they're like, they were so disappointed. Well, folks, if, if you don't have any um, more questions um, in the chat, then maybe we'll uh, we'll do a wrap on the show. Um, Matt, any any other uh, things you wanted to bring up or any final words? Uh, I don't know. I, there's, I can always talk for hours. There's so much to talk about. But uh, um just uh, subscribe to Coral. Put put food on my kids' table. Yeah, somebody was if asking. Like somebody was asking how they could uh, find your articles and whatnot. So there you go. Yeah. So um, uh, AmazonasMagazine.com, CoralMagazine.com. Um, those are the two places to go subscribe. It's dirt cheap. I mean, it's less a, a year subscription uh, to Amazonas. I think is thirty nine, and I think Coral is still thirty seven. Someone asked why we don't publish uh, an issue every month. But part of it is we'd have to charge twice as much. Part of it is the German issue is only the German only publishes six times a year. And that's still the core. That's the part, the base that we build on. So it's not a clone of the German issue, but you're getting that overseas influence uh, from Europe, which is really cool because you don't get that other places. Um, yeah. But I mean, you're, you're going to spend more on a single nice coral frag than you will for a year of, of coral or Amazonas. And what, yeah. uh, what, where can they find you online? digital uh, um, publications so so i it's all coral uh, reef to rainforest.com is yeah. still the hub for both publications uh the short story there is uh myself and two partners uh stefan tanner and mike tucinardi took over the publication of amazonas so now we have our own publishing company um but we still work i still work for both magazines we still share mostly the same staff uh so that's another reason why we only publish each one six times a year because the month we're working on coral, we're not working on Amazonas. <laughs> so we go back and forth. So they're actually produced a month apart. Uh, and so that's how, that's how you get a year's worth of employment out of it. So, so yeah, thanks. Thanks folks for, uh, for tuning in. We're getting some great feedback here. Macy's daddy. Thanks, Matt and Keith. You're awesome. Hope Keith has you on again, <laughs> Matt. So yeah, Matt, we'd love to have you back on the show and, uh, just, uh, talk, uh, talk fish, talk reef, what have you. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we didn't even really talk about coral very much. No, not that can, uh, I'm not the coral expert, so I'll let other people talk about that. But, uh, yeah, I love a good reading. There you go. I've got one There going. you go. All right, folks. Well, listen, that's going to do it for this show. I want to just give my sincere thanks again for Matt for being a guest. Matt, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it. It was very educational. I, I'm always happy to, to be here to, to talk and chat and answer questions. Uh, it's a great part, especially since we're not having in-person opportunities lately this is a great a great way to keep those connections yeah, no. going so thank you for, thank you for having me thanks for everyone who is asking questions down there in the chat I, I i saw some i wanted to get to but didn't didn't catch them um 
but uh, I, I love the uh, the discussion. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, if there's things that uh, you, you folks want to have uh, answered, you could um, you know put them in the comments section of the uh, video, and and uh, perhaps Matt can um, answer them there. So my next show will be next Thursday and on March 4th at 9 p.m. I'm going to have Hillary Jaffe on. She's a marine biologist and aquarist at the uh, Silverton Casino and founder of Waterlogged. So that should be another great show. And la that will yeah. be. And, and lastly, yeah. I want to remind you folks, I'm going to actually be having a live coral show myself on Saturday, March 13th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So I'm going to feature a bunch of premium SPS WYSIWYG frags that'll be on sale so you know grab a beer and or your favorite beverage sit down we could even do some q a during that anyway until uh next week be safe be well and we'll see you next time